Thank you very much. It's, it's lovely to be here, and I'm sorry I can only spend today with you all. I've got family coming who've come from upcountry who's staying with me at the moment, so um, all efforts to try and stay with you longer at the conference, um, unfortunately, are um, being sidetracked. But it is very nice to be here today, and I've actually learned such a lot. So I've got some, we're talking about the power of stories, and I'm, I'm going to tell you my little story. So true confessions, I'm not a teacher. I don't know very much about Montessori stuff, so I feel like I've got a lot to learn, and I have already learned quite a lot. Um, but it is lovely to be here, and I think there's something that just comes through already, I mean, just from the reading that we were doing this morning, but, but is about the power of stories. It comes through very strongly from what I've heard in terms of a Montessori teaching. And, and we really do believe that stories can transform lives. I mean, I loved about what Susan was saying as well, about when you speak to someone in their own language, then they, they listen in their heart. And I think that is so true for, um, for everybody. Um, it's unfortunately denied to a lot of people, and especially to um, people in Africa, as we, as we have heard. Now, I just wanted to find out from the audience, uh, how many of you are from South Africa? So a fair share. So the first part is kind of going to deal with a little bit of the context um, in which we live here in South Africa. So um, sorry if I'm repeating things that you already know, but for others it might be quite interesting. So just in terms of, well, to give you a background, Funza Literacy Trust, we are a non-profit organization. We um, are aimed specifically at working with teens and young adults in South Africa. So it's probably an older age group than many of you are, um, are used to working with. At the same time, it's often a forgotten age group because there's a lot of effort put into literacy for early childhood development and foundation phase learning, but not that much when it gets, when you get um, sort of going up that uh, the school ladder, then suddenly it falls away. It's taken for granted that you actually know how to read and now you're supposed to read for meaning, you're supposed to get on with your life and, and just do it. And the fact is lots of people in South Africa cannot do that because they cannot read for meaning yet. And so what we're trying to do is to, to see how can we capture people through stories to get them to feel like they can become readers, that they want to become readers and to, to get that inspiration and hope that, that um, they can become a lifelong learner. So just one of the biggest barriers is that there are very few books in homes. So this was a study that was done in 2016. And um, in fact, the previous year's study from 2007, I think it was, found that 51% of households didn't have leisure books in them. And it's actually got slightly worse. 58% of households in South Africa do not have any book that is a leisure or pleasure reading book. And that just means, you know, Six out of ten children don't have access to books in their home environment. And this has huge impact in terms of the classroom. So this is a, it was taken from the annual national assessments, the last one which was done in 2013, and the average mark for English um, by grade nines in 2013 was 33.2%. Now this is the language that people are having to both study in and learn in and write the exams in. So again, that, that pushes your, um, your potential for actually performing academically out the window. This is another study, it's the third diagnostic report on the 2013 matric results. So it's looking at, um, it was looking at the actual exam papers that people were um, handing in, and this was one of the conclusions, that they were unable to write in paragraphs, they did not understand questions, and were completely unfamiliar with vocabulary. 
And then again, it's about poverty, because children from the wealthiest family in South Africa are 10 times as likely as those from the poorest household, households to school well in reading. So basically, if you have access, your chances of doing well in life are really good. If you don't have access to books, and if you don't have access um, to a good education system, your chances are very, very um, unlikely to be able to, to achieve. So what we're trying to do is to change this. And so one of the things that we're doing is we, we're supporting groups with books. And this is partly where the cover to cover comes in. So it's a, a for-profit publisher that we work with to produce the kind of texts that we know and that we um, will actually get people reading for pleasure. Local books written by local writers, often um, they are young writers as well, who are able to speak to the issues that young people face. We've supported um, 500 reading groups around the country, and each of those supports at least 100 writers, you know, 100 readers. Um, so, you know, it's, it's quite a significant number of books, and obviously those books stay in the community and are used on a continuous basis. But what we're also doing is we're reaching people through cell phones. So we've built an online mobile network, and anybody can log on and find funza.mobi and they can read new content that we're creating every single day, actually, to support this reading community. And at the moment, that's reaching around a quarter of a million um, readers every single month. So it is quite a significant impact, and it's English as well as other South African languages that is being reproduced in there. And I'll take you for a little tour a bit later. We also run, we work with um, specific organizations on projects, and we create um, online courses using our materials as well. So we're trying to promote language learning in a far more formal way. But then very significantly, and I think we're one of the few organizations that do this, we, we're really trying to encourage writing for expression because it's one thing, and in fact it was what I loved about the reading today, was this emphasis on writing and the creation of, of text. And even though that was obviously for much younger um, readers, writers, at the same time, as soon as you can start to see that your writing is meaningful and holds value, then there's something about your identity that you're putting through in that text and about agency and power as an individual. So I'm trying to make, I was thinking about, in fact, I was absolutely terrified about coming here because I thought all of these teachers, I'm not a teacher, I don't know what I'm going to do, and it's the afternoon, you're all going to be bored out of your minds or falling asleep. So um, we've got some exercises that I'm interspersing this with, so you're going to have to bear with me and just be very kind, please. Um, <laughs> but the, the first thing is I wanted to tell you about my personal reading journey because I was incredibly privileged growing up in South Africa as a, as a white person in the 1970s, but I was even more privileged than that because I had a, um, an adopted grandfather who my father had taken over his publishing business and all he loved was, was books and walking on the mountains. And he couldn't walk on the mountains with a two or three year old, but what he could do is he could read to me. And he used to come for me and my sister from 8 o'clock every single morning till 12 o'clock. And for four hours, he would read to us. And it was the most incredible introduction to, to the world of books and reading. And so I think it's, it's, not, you know, it's a very, um, well, it's so likely in many ways that firstly I grew up to be literate, but also that I um, really believe in this power of stories and books in order to transform lives because I've seen how it has, has impacted on my own experience. So I thought what I'd ask you to do at the first exercise is to just a free writing exercise. I don't know how many of you know, have you ever done free writing? Do you know the rules? Okay, I'll give it a 
quick rules. So you've got a topic. So this is my reading journey. And um, you're supposed to write, obviously, longhand. Try to not let your pen leave the page for five minutes with that as a prompt. And if you can't think of anything to write and your hand needs to move along, then you can say, I don't know what to write. I wish the words would come to me, or whatever you like. But to just keep moving through the process. So this is your first exercise, and you can start now. Five minutes is up, so you can put your pens down. Do you want to share just for a minute or two with the person next to you or the people next to you if there was anything that came out of that that was anything significant that had happened? Okay, great. Has everyone been able to share a little something? <laughs> You're busy now. <laughs> Does anyone want to share a little bit of anything that they can remember, a memory or something significant? Anybody? I think one association that uh, is, is incredibly powerful is the feeling of, of sitting on a parent's lap and being read to with the arms around you and the book in front and that extraordinary, f wonderful feeling of being held and safe and, and sharing that experience. Like, I mean, it just came back to me. I didn't write it down, but as I was writing, it came back, this whole sensorial experience, which was all about love. It was wonderful. Beautiful. Anybody else who wants to say? Uh, um, I also used, I, I used to listen to my brother's reading, but um, I, I, it's not very clear to me when exactly I learned to read, but I remember this in my journey to reading. Um, that I learned through rote learning. We, re we recited the English alphabet in mother tongue. Teachers would tell us to close our eyes and say A to Z. I could recite books from cover to cover, but if you opened a random page, I would have to go back to the beginning and recite all the pages before the one I had been asked to read. When I started reading, I was too excited. I tried reading every book I picked regardless of the language. I remember sounding even English words through my, in my mother tongue. But later I knew the difference. Thank you. Oh, that's so lovely. Okay, um, my story that I wrote was about the first person that taught me how to read, which was uh, in my first year at school. And the main thing that came up is that she had this long brown dress, which I thought was particularly unattractive. <laughs> and um, ever since then, I've avoided the color brown. <laughs> I do not have anything to wear that's brown. Okay. So my uncle took me in at age seven, so I spoke little or no English. Um, my native tongue was Basa. So his wife, she would spend at least an hour with me daily with phonetic tips in my ear, <laughs> encouraging me and showing me the sounds, but I did not like them. <laughs> but and then parallel to the 
phonetic things she was teaching me, she was always reading to us, me and her, and her daughter at the time. So as vocabulary built and I learned how to read, she would also task us with um, looking up a word each day and give her a report at the end of the day on what the meaning of the word was. <laughs> that was my path to reading. Um, I started writing down and then it took me on a whole different journey. And um, I was just reminded of my first, first story that I, I wrote and then I read to myself. And the, I was five years old and I had these little toys. I don't know if some of you might remember, it's called the Magic Babies. They were the little nappies that you put in the freezer and then, <laughs> then you have to wait. And you close the door and it's like that excitement that you're standing in front of the fridge and you're waiting. And once you open the door, you discover, okay, is it blue or is it pink? <laughs> but that fascinated me and that inspired me as, as, as a little girl. Then I wrote a story of their little adventures. And I read it to myself and I read it to the magic babies. And it just like, <laughs> I was five and nobody could read the books that I wrote, but I, I knew what it was. And yeah, it was quite a fond memory. So thanks, it was a good ex oh, exercise. Oh, those are so lovely. Um, what I thought I'd do now, unless there's anyone else? Anyone else? No? All right. One more. Okay, yeah. Let's go. Okay. Um, I, uh, when, while I was writing, I realized I don't actually remember when I learned to read. I have memories of reading all the signs out of the car window, driving, and um, being able to read Hop on Pop, Dr. Seuss to my younger brother and things like that. But um, I don't. Uh, by the stage that I remember that, I was already a little bit older. I don't remember the process. Um, but what I do remember is sitting with my grandfather who lived with us and he used to tell us stories all the time. Um, and both my grandfathers actually were very big storytellers. So um, uh, I don't remember the stories, but I was saying to these ladies, I really remember the feeling of being with him and I remember the feeling of him telling us the stories. So... That to me is very powerful. And his stories were so powerful that my younger brother actually used to go to school and tell them as if he was there as well. And he would say, oh, when me and Pa went to war and we did this and when me and Pa <laughs> met with our mate. And yeah, so it was, um, yeah, really, I just wanted to share that. Oh, that's lovely. I mean, you realize that it's not so much about the story, but it is about those relationships as well. And then your your feeling about the person that is telling you the stories, which I think is very important to remember. So what I wanted to do quickly, and again, this can be interactive, but um, this is our site, punza.mobi. So for those of you who do have internet access and have a phone, you can go and look it up. So you go just type in your browser, live.funza.mobi. There's also an app from the Google Play Store if you've got an Android phone. So it's called Funza app in the Google Play Store. And I'm going to see, I'm hoping that my internet connection is working and then I can bring it up as well. So it's a very data light site because one of the biggest challenges that we face in South Africa is the very high cost of data, particularly for those at the very base of the pyramid, which is the people, the young people that we're wanting to reach. So there are no pretty pictures. 
we try and use color as effectively as possible. Most of it is text. And what we then need to do is to try and make, how is that text going to be as exciting as possible? How are the stories going to be as relevant as possible to the um, young South Africans that we're wanting to target? And how can we make sure that they, they do come back as well? Because, I mean, obviously, if it's not relevant to them, they don't have to come here. So they have to choose to come here. And how can we try and get those, those elements right? Every week, we've got a new short story, which is under the, so the Go For It. It was actually written by one of our um, young mentee writers, and it's part of a special project that we're doing um, around the benefits of after-school programs with Western Cape government to try and show how um, after-school programs can actually have a huge benefit on a young person's life. Um, this particular story is about she's, the girl is supposed to be going to an academic after-school program, but actually discovers her love of soccer and starts doing that instead. So she's a bit naughty. Um, Blessed with the Baby was a story from last week, and The Cursed and the Exiled from the week before. You can hear they're quite catchy titles, um, which is also something that we need to, to try and get right. Then we encourage our young readers to start writing too. And we've got a whole section for fans writing. So these five items here are all poems, essays, or, sh or short stories which have actually been written, submitted by young people around the country. They send it to us. We work with them to, to edit it as lightly as possible and then publish it online. And we've had about 3,000 people who've been published that way. And some of them have then gone on to become mentored writers. Um, so. <laughs> Um, so we kind of find really good, talented young people and we work with them more and then they become our professional writers over time. We also do a lot of regular content, which is, yeah, so we've, we've got a weekly blog called How To. So this one is about calculating monthly installments, so simple interest. Um, we've got an inspiring tomorrow feature, so every week we interview a young person in the country who's doing something which is just different or exciting or inspiring, and we put their story up there to try and keep our readers thinking, perhaps I can do that too. Um, we run also open online courses, so there's three in, at any point in time that people can sign up to do, and these are short little courses, so um, they're about 10 modules, it would take someone sort of over a two-week period if they were doing it an hour a day, you know, that sort of amount of time to, to complete. Um, the latest one is on feature writing, so that's Lens and Life. Then we've also got WorkWise, which is a, a fortnightly blog, and um, it aims to try and give people, about 30% of our readers are unemployed, so they're not in school, they're not studying in any way, they're not working, and they are actually of trying to find a job. So for us, trying to give them information that's actually going to be useful information is very important. So that's also partly why the courses are so popular, because people are needing or wanting to do things which are going to improve their skills, but at the same time, thinking about how they can become more professional in the workplace is, is very important too. And then we've got a feature, a weekly um, blog called Mindspace, which is really looking at um, sort of issues that young people face growing up in, in South Africa. And we try and target it on certain things. So trying to um, confront certain stereotypes um, and maybe talk about difficult subjects. So this one, Boys Don't Cry, is looking at the way that parents treat boys and girls so differently when they're growing up. 
Um, and then we also do a weekly children's stories, because that's another thing we know that a lot of our young readers are already parents themselves, or else they are having to look after younger siblings in the, at home. And so making sure that they've got access to children's content is very important. Um, just so you know, at the bottom here, you'll, you'll have the trending. This story, The Village Girl, was actually written, it's a play, which was written by one of our fans' writers, and it's been the top-read story on our site for the last year. I don't know why it is so popular, but it really, it's kind of got something that makes readers want to come back for more, so yeah, it's a hugely popular story. You, please explore it and go into it. I'm not going to go more than that, but um, just to give you a, a slight overview of what's, of what's happening on the site. So now, we, this is actually something which came up slightly in our um, breakaway session, was looking at technology. And I know um, that people have very strong feelings about the use of technology. And I just wanted to have a, just a quick something to say with the person next to you, and we can maybe also just um, talk about it as a group. But how do you feel about reading on mobile phones? Because obviously, I mean, for us, We've got access to scale, you know, that's something that you can't necessarily get with paper-based reading. But it is very different to paper-based reading. So it has those benefits and it has um, challenges as well. So I just thought maybe for a minute or two and then we can share if there are any points that you'd want to, to raise with the group. If you can chat to the person or people next to you. Oh, come on, get on with it. <laughs> Okay, let's listen to some points, and then we c you can all Sorry. contribute. Oh, Kathleen. I, I, um, Kathleen, you need to, Kathleen, you need to speak oh, into sorry. the microphone. Oh, it's on. Okay, um, my colleague and I were just talking about how we love to have um, the reading device either on the phone or on the iPad, just because it's always available, and if you have... Uh, Wi-Fi or you've downloaded the book, you always have access to reading material, but you always also, if you really are a person that loves reading and get and is relaxed by reading, um, you need to have something, you need to be carrying a paperback when you don't have the Wi-Fi or the, <laughs> right, but any, any variation um, to be able to read is great. Okay, thank you. Uh, Javita, you're next. Javita has had something to say. Yeah, you did? <laughs> I saw you did. Okay, uh, Terry then. Um, according to our discussion with Rose, um, it feels very nice reading through the mobile phones and electronic devices to us. But to children, it is going to be more of excitement and exploration. And at times, according to what we all know as teachers um, and directors and directresses, that at times electronic devices can be so disturbing and distracting and lead to something else. And their benefits are that we get everything that we do want at a go, because the books are limited with information. Thank you. Someone else? Hi. I would actually like to read from a book. I'm a little bit old school, although I'm young. The reason why I like the book because I can always uh, refer to a quote. I can always underline and take that quote and refer to something else. 
compared to read from the device. And with the devices, sometimes the internet is not 100%. Um, so when I want to read, I will struggle because I cannot um, access what I want to read. And also with the devices, we're always looking at the screens at home, watching TVs, at, at work, uh, working from the laptops. So, and also then if I have to read from my phone, that is also won't be good for my eyes. So I will actually choose to read from the book. So where I can always make mark and whatever I like there in that. Anyone else? We were just saying that um, we prefer reading from books, but for the younger generation, they love the modern technology and the phones. So, yeah, I think a generational gap. Ian? It, uh, Kathleen, then Ian. Kathleen? It, it seems as if the choice is not so much reading versus, reading books versus digital books, but reading or not. And if it's reading or not, then go for digital. But don't give up on the library. So encourage every parent to read aloud. So much of the richness of the experience is the sharing and the mystery of turning the page and the beauty of the illustrations and the magic of libraries and bookstores and you know, both. Let's go for both. Huh? Uh, Hi. I just think that uh, we are so in an age of technology that mobile phones are both connecting everyone and connecting everyone to information. And uh, if you speak to some of the people here, they live in areas where, as Eric will tell you, they have libraries with no books in them. And I think the other advantage uh, of the mobile phone or the iPad or whatever the small computer device is that fits into a hand and will continue to fit into hands is that it makes it very economical to take content and share it around the world in multiple languages because you don't have the expense of translating and printing. You can simply translate and get it out there in any one of the thousands of languages as the demand exists. Thank you. Thanks. Um, personally, I prefer reading in books too, just saying. So I think it is a generational thing. Um, that said, I also know that our young readers, they definitely, they love reading on phones, but some of them will also say, I loved it so much, I want to have the book of it. You know, can you get me a print copy? We often don't, we do take some of our content into print, but we don't take all of our content into print just because of, of the, the huge costs of that. So um, we realize that there is still this demand for reading on paper too. The one thing which we have found, in, which is interesting, and it's sort of leading into the next slides, but um, the one richness of technology is that people can comment and like and share. And that interactivity is, is huge in this digital environment, which you don't get in a print medium in that same way. And um, one of my colleagues, who is actually a teacher, um, and I was thinking she really should have been doing this <laughs> instead of me, but anyway. Um, but she was talking about when she was working with students in their school, in a high school, people wouldn't question print. They wouldn't want to criticize print. In fact, they wouldn't even think that print necessarily had an author. 
print just existed as something which was more like the Bible or, you know, it was just taken for granted that it, it was there and it was truthful and it was right. Whereas that, that's not the case in this digital environment. People are far more critical and questioning and feel that they've got more agency because I think they're used to texting their friends or having an opinion about something on Facebook or whatever it is. But there's something about agency which is, is different in that digital space versus the print space. Um, and we get a huge amount of comments from, from our readers. So. Um, I can't even remember how many hundreds of thousands of comments we've had over the years, but the, it's like daily we're getting this constant feedback from readers about what they like, what they don't like, and what reading on Funza means to them. So I just wanted to share some of those with you. So this first one is um, it's one of my favorites because it's obviously a very positive quote. Getting a boost every day, so feeling inspired. Um, and also that the authors are clever. I mean, I'm sure the authors really would like that too. And the stories are great. But also about it being teaching about what's happening in real life. And that's something that comes through a lot from our readers. So they can see in the stories, because they can relate to the stories and they feel that the characters are close to them or they are experiencing things which are close to their own life, they can start to see how can they apply this, whether it's um, understanding what people did wrong or, or trying to see what they did right and be inspired by that. In this one, what a beautifully written story. I cried when I read it as I could relate to it so much. Um, and we get many of these really sad stories. So my mother passed on when I was seven and my father is a criminal. The story has given me so much courage to review my past and accept reality. And I mean, I think that's incredibly deep where you feel that the story connects with, connected with this reader in that sort of way and made her feel something um, very personal about her life and coming to terms with, with her past. And then also behavior change. So she, someone who used to spend a lot of time watching TV, but then discovering reading on her phone. Now she's applying for a library card and she's gonna get books whenever she wants. I mean, that for us is just like gold, <laughs> you know, because it's obviously what we want. And we don't mind whether people are reading on Funzo, whether they're going and getting books from their library. But the fact is that that person is now becoming a lifelong reader and learner. And that's really what we're wanting to do. So we've learned a lot over the last couple of years, and um, the biggest thing is around what sort of stories work. And for us, this is ours. It's not a magic formula. It takes a lot of hard work, but it, it does sort of work for us. So the stories need to be relatable. So it's about characters that are going to um, make people feel like either they like themselves or they like their friend or like their mother, but there's something there that connects them to them. Exciting plots. Without a doubt, We've, we have done some stories which um, are less plot-driven and we can see readership sort of wanes. People want to get, be kept excited and wanting to know what's happening next. Clear, easy to read language, and that is very, very important. And it, it speaks to the low levels of literacy, but if you're wanting to get people to feel like the world is their oyster, this reading world is their oyster, you have to make it smooth and easy. So trying to keep the language as, as clear and easy. At the same time, it doesn't mean you have to use the smallest words. You can use bigger words, but in a way that it's not going to interrupt that reading process and make people feel like they can't do it, it's too difficult. Then authenticity, touching on things that actually matter to people. So again, that's where we get the, this feedback from our readers is such a valuable resource as well because it helps us to work out what works in our environment and what doesn't. And then getting young people to be the, become the writers as well because 
um, you know, from all the things that you might be able to learn, the person who's actually been in that situation or has experienced it is definitely going to be able to talk about it in a way that we could never even think. And they use the sort of the language and the dialogue that we could never try and do if we were just um, trying to supplant it. But also very importantly is that we do deliver stories with a message, but we never want to be preachy. And part of our message is actually about um, becoming, a, I mean, found very interesting, the, the independence you've been talking about through Montessori. So critical thinkers, independent thinkers, and agents in the world is what we see as being um, the, what we would like Funza to be doing to the, to the young people that we reach. And part of that is, means that you, you're going to make mistakes. And making mistakes is hugely valuable if you're learning from them. It's not something to be afraid of. And um, so we, we often write stories where people actually are making a lot of mistakes, doing, you know, doing all the wrong things. But somehow or other, there might be some glimmer of hope or something that there's some kind of um, sense that there are opportunities beyond just that. We've then done a whole, and I know that the theme of this conference as a whole is around social change. And using what we've, what we've learned, we started to see how could we use stories as a way to kind of push people a little bit in terms of issues that we know that we are facing as a country um, that, that might be able to help us to, to change people's both behaviors and attitudes. And um, there, are certain, there are a couple of themes. I'm just going to touch very briefly on, on some of the projects that we've done. One of, this was a very early story that we'd written, um, that we'd written by Son, with Son Rabiso, um, and it's called In Search of Happiness, and it was about a, a young girl who moves from the Eastern Cape to Masipomalele in Cape Town, and she feels very different at school, and she's trying to sort of find her feet. Um, and through the story, so by about chapter four or five, you start to discover that actually she's falling in love with the girl next door. So it's a, it's a love story. It's a gay, lesbian love story. And um, it was turned into a book, which is already a beautiful book. But we were quite nervous. It was the first time we'd, we'd written on a lesbian theme, and we weren't sure this is a really hot topic in South Africa. Would our readers accept such a thing? And we had such amazing comments. Um, so we had people who were both recognizing themselves, but we also had people, I didn't include some of those comments, that were um, changing their attitudes. So there was things like, I'm now seeing this issue with different eyes. And that was really the kind of response that we wanted to get. And we were so pleased that, that we got it. Um, and then we started to see, well, how can we push this even further? So we worked with the UNHCR over a couple of years to pr also produce stories generally around World Refugee Day, but looking at, um, at the issues around xenophobia in South Africa, which has also been such a hot topic. So people moving, to, moving into South Africa from other African countries and um, you know, it causes all of these incredible stresses. Um, so the picture, the person in this picture is Phoebe, who was actually working for us, and she was um, from Rwanda, and she helped to write some of these stories because she obviously personally experienced this as well. Um, so you can see this one is a, a, um, a comment from a Congolese reader who was, was saying how painful it was to be um, to feel different in South Africa and to to feel um, that they aren't being accepted. And I'm just going to quickly run through these next three. So this was a series of three different stories. And again, you can sort of see um, people's attitudes around xenophobia, either being challenged or being changed in some way or other. 
And that led us on to thinking again, how can we take this even further? So we'd worked with the UNHCR and then we, we decided to try looking at our, our Constitution and Bill of Rights and seeing how could we use storytelling as a means to get people to think about the rights that we have in South Africa. So from 2014 to 2017, we ran a project called the Rights Project where we did um, 20, we took 20 of the rights in our Bill of Rights and we, we created a fictional um, story that sort of centered on that right, but in a very personal way. So illustrating how that right actually happens or ex is experienced by people in the country. Um, and they were also they came with little resource booklets, so they were all published online and 10 of them were then made into little booklets. And since then, we've started a new project called Rights 2.0, Bridging Divides, which is looking at these type of divides. So the community divides, gender divides, and information divides. Um, and information divides is really looking at um, the, the divides around education and inequality in our society, as well as information. Um, now, you would have seen floating around on your tables the little samples of some of the, the booklets. So the next little interactive um, exercise to keep people awake is, um, I just thought if you can glance through the first page or so of the, um, of the booklet. I hope everyone does have a copy, but shout if you don't, because I'm sure that there are extras on other tables. And just think, what would happen next? Do you think it sounds like a good story? Do you feel like there's maybe too much of a message? Is it, um, there are different ones. You might not have the same as your partner. Um, do you think it would appeal to teens? Um, do you have other ideas on how you can deliver a message which maybe is exciting? So then if you read a tiny bit, and then we'll give, again, chance to discuss, and we can do a quick report back. Has everyone had a chance to give it a glance and think about it a little bit? And would anyone like to share anything that they thought? Yeah. Great, yeah, you want to go ahead. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting just re just kind of skimming through it a little bit, just reading kind of the language and just how it doesn't exactly fit with all of this generation's kind of slang. And so kind of going through that and reading through that, um, but it also brought up valid topics of like those two girls being approached by some random person, which is a very real thing all around the world, no matter where you are. So uh, it, it addressed very valid topics, but in a way that was a little bit more old school to us, at least. <laughs> Great. Anyone else? Um, I read uh, some pages from Bridging Divides, um, Chasing Dreams, and I actually thought the, um, the language was very... Um, young in terms of uh, texting and bullet points and expressing emotion quickly to the point and I could kind of read the thoughts of this young girl um, almost like a text um, so I thought it was definitely something that was catchy and the topics were definitely relevant. Thanks, great. Catherine? Please. 
Um, I was just thinking about the re relevancy of what we are, we've been talking about all day and um, talking about the mother's tongue and um, like the importance of keeping that. And here's within the first two chapter, the girls is um, already being saying that, the principal is saying that we cannot speak Aosa in this place because mm. we want to be fluent. <laughs> and then, um, the girl is pronouncing her name, Ch Chaweta, and the, and the teacher herself is saying, why you people have such hard names? Your name is supposed to be like uh, Sarah or Hazel. Yeah, that was a very, um, <laughs> so that's the code of conduct, am I right, mm -hmm. that story? Yeah, yeah. so um, it's just very, yeah. very relevant. Yeah, and I mean, we had a situation in South Africa where a couple of schools were um, exposed for their language policies and how it was othering so many people in the schools by, by saying, how do you wear your hair, for instance, or what language are you allowed to speak, either in the classroom or even just at break time? So we wanted to use a story to really kind of confront that and to talk about the importance of language and identity. Anyone else? Anyone else? Anyone else at all? Okay. Thanks. So I think the one thing which we, we always find quite difficult with these sort of stories is that you are trying to deliver a very specific message and that, you know, the one point which I had earlier about not being preachy, it, it can be very hard to get it in. Also, it's quite serious topics and so you still need to make it fun and exciting. So it's a real challenge to the writer to do these type of stories. So we surveyed our readers just to find out um, sort of how they found them. And we were very pleased with the results that there was still a really positive reaction to the story, 84% giving them a thumbs up. Also that the information was helpful, that the, they were getting as resource material on the side. Um, the amount of sharing that was happening, so that more than half of them had shared as one of those stories with a friend or a relative is, is really big. And especially when you're thinking that these were generally um, delivered digitally, so it is about either you know, sharing a link or, or sharing your phone. Um, but also that there had been some sense of impact on behavior or change of views, so change of attitude. So for us, it was incredibly positive um, results. And then there were also just lovely qualitative feedback. So some of the comments about what was their favorite story. So this one, um, there weren't copies of the booklet, but it is only available online. Death Trap, which I was actually talking to someone about earlier, which is um, around um, people or companies that specifically target social grant um, recipients in order to trap them in debt. And it's, it's a story that deals with this as a particular issue. Um, this was another one, Truth is Truth, which was dealing with corruption. And again, it was opening up um, this person's eyes um, to corruption. It was, it was quite an interesting story, but investigative journalist um, who's sort of going out and covering, so low-level corruption with the local councillor in the community. So also something that people can identify or can maybe think, you know, these are all characters that are easily relatable to, to young people today. Um, 
And then this last one was also another story which had touched on gays and lesbians. And what I loved about this comment um, was that they were referring it back to their own life. So they shared it with their friend and then they discovered that the fr friend's cousin was gay and they didn't like her in the beginning, but now they're actually getting along with her. And that, I mean, that shows quite a lot of progression, I think, in terms of the way that people, not just attitudes, but actually behaviors as well. So then the last part of my talk, I just wanted to move on to language because it is the theme for today. And we are dealing with teens and young adults. So that's our very specific target market. 13 to 25 years is, is our sort of age range that we, we aim to reach. And we do survey our readers all the time, well not all the time, but every year, to, to get a sense of what people want, what we should be changing, and what impact it is having. One of the questions we ask is, what language do you want to read in? And 85% of our readers will volunteer English as their language of choice to read in. And I think that this is significant because um, it means that language, um, English is such a dominant language in South Africa. And to do well academically and to do well economically, you need to be proficient in English. So it's such a hurdle for people. And the majority of our readers are not going to be home language English speakers. So this is a major barrier to their success in life. So there is this huge demand for English. At the same time, we really do want to be encouraging people to be valuing their own identity and their culture, and language is so much a part of that. And so how do we start to, to not that we necessarily have to change the demand entirely, but to make sure that stories in other languages are also valued and are also seen as being accessible and a part of life. So this um, graphic just kind of gives you a sense of demand for the other languages. Um, and Zulu and Kosa, um, followed by Afrikaans, and um, I think Sesuana are the, are the next biggest. We can also see it exactly in our, in our readership numbers, because obviously when you're working with digital, you can get really good stats to see what's, what is actually happening and what reading, what reading is happening in the back end. And um, about... 20%, if you take a story which is available in both English and Zulu, then the English story, if it's read by 100 people, the equivalent in Zulu would be read by about 18 people. But the cost of producing that Zulu story compared to the English one is at least double, if not more, because of working, you know, it's a much smaller skill set and you're working often with translators and you have to, it has to go through various proofing um, mechanisms. So it's, there's this terrible cost imbalance as well, which is something that we, we try and deal with as best we can. And what we've also realized is that, especially if you're working with translators, translation is it's such a tricky thing. Language is so difficult. And um, we found that we worked originally with a translation service, but we weren't getting that literary quality that we needed, the nuance of the language that we wanted. And especially in a fictional environment where you're wanting to encourage reading for pleasure, you have to find the right words. And so what we've been doing, which has been far more successful, is actually often working writers who um, speak, say, Zulu, would be writing in Zulu and then doing their own translations into English. And that's been the most successful way of us being able to get dual texts. So, <laughs> but it is tricky and hard. And the other thing which is so difficult is often languages 
you think that you're doing it all correct and you've had it proved by lots of different people and then someone says to you, actually, it's not, you know, that's not my, the right version. It should be this version over here. And you realize that this version is okay here or in that rural area, but not actually okay here in um, the city. So the, it's very tricky. But anyway, we try and embrace all of these things and, and figure out how to do it as we go along. The last thing which I wanted to do was to read to you, this is an essay that was written by a grade 11 student on languages and me. And so um, it's quite small text, so I'm actually going to read it out loud um, so that you can hear it. And then um, we'll do a last little reflection exercise. So, languages to me define who we are. Our accents categorize us. I'm a Nkwasa woman who can speak two other languages, English and Afrikaans. I express myself using different languages. People gossip about me not knowing that I can understand their language. I gossip about them, knowing who they are and what languages they speak. In my community, English is seen as a fancy language because people think only educated people are known to speak it. In all my school life, I have attended white schools. I went to Holy Cross Primary, then to Odemolin. From there, I came to Leap. When I speak English, people see me as a coconut or a cheese girl. Then they think that I'm better than them. It's irritating to get those comments because they are not true. English, the language, is a borrowed language to me. When I speak it, it's like I'm trapped inside. It's like reciting a tongue twister. Isikosa is a great language. I speak it without having to worry about my mistakes, like using he instead of she or writing leave instead of live. I'm a proud Kosa woman. The language is connected to our culture. There are lots of things in our culture, like initiation for the boys, Isiduko, which is clan names, Imbeleko, done for children, or Mendo, traditional weddings for women, and so on. Kosa is a language that people undermine. If you speak Kosa, most people will say, Uli Kuba, not educated, especially if you are from Ezilaleni, which is rural areas. Who are they to choose your language? People don't get the idea that most, well, my clicks are getting all tongue twisted, most closer um, speaking people are very good closer speakers and writers. When people hear the clicks, they get irritated because they don't understand what we are saying. I embrace Isi Mkosa. Afrikaans is one of the language, languages I understand and know how to speak. But when I speak Afrikaans, it feels like I've borrowed it too. Whatever I say, I don't mean it, because it's not my language. The irritating thing is that Afrikaans speakers' people are quickly judged. They say that you do drugs, you smoke, etc. People say, yay, skellum. How is a person supposed to feel when they hear that? Afrikaans is a language of Southern Africa derived from Dutch. People should be honored by this. I know that I am. Even though Afrikaans is not my home language, I love to hear spe people speaking it, and I love speaking it myself. Afrikaans is a chafalika tal, as the Afrikaans people say. When I speak Afrikaans, people give me a funny look because I'm black. It is mostly known that if you're black, you speak Isikorta, but if you, if you are white, you speak English. If you're colored, you speak Afrikaans. I've misjudged people because of the way they look. One time I gossiped about a person on a camp that I attended, not knowing he was bilingual. After a day, I heard him speaking Isi Kosa, and I was shocked and surprised. I quickly apologized for my improper behavior. That taught me not to judge people by the color of their skin. 
Language is a meaningful aspect of life. Everything about you revolves around the language you speak and the culture you come from. Embrace your language and be proud of it. I am. So I thought to, um, to close, we could do another free writing exercise, last one, just for five minutes, and to think about language in yourself and, and what it means to see the world through your particular tongue or tongues if you're multilingual and how that might have changed your perception of self. And then we can share it at the end. All right, should we get the, let's do the reporting back. Does anyone have anything that they'd like to share with the group? Here's one. <laughs> can I go ahead? Yes, please go. Okay, can I just read what I've written? I had no intention of sharing it with the room at large. Yeah? Um, and this is it. I grew up amongst Kosa-speaking people. When we talked about a black person, we always called them Um Kosa. We had no idea that other black people could speak other languages. I soon learned to use words correctly. When I think about my childhood, I now realize that our language abilities matured quite early on. By the time I was six, I understood and used idiomatic expression and had a wide vocabulary. I spoke well and expressed myself from the heart. My attempts at speaking English, the other language I knew existed, were limited to pinching my nose, speaking with impaired breathing and saying, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's so lovely. <laughs> Anybody else? Hi. Um, oh, th sorry, this one here. Yeah. Okay, so I just want to share like my experience. I'm from Nigeria, and the official language in Nigeria is English. So we basically speak English in school, in places of work, and everything. But while I was growing up, my parents used to speak to us in the local dialect. But I found that, that just like the story you read, I could so relate to that story because there's this thing in Nigeria where if someone can't speak English, you, the person is looked down upon. But we're a country of over 200 languages, and you know, there are some parts of Nigeria where they still don't have access to English. And the society as a whole looks down on people that cannot speak English. And you have my generation now, like when they have children, they speak English at home to their kids. So the local languages are kind of going extinct. But there's a new trend now, like a new consciousness, like we have to do better. We have to ensure that these languages don't disappear. And that's actually where we are now. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. Anybody else? There's a hand here. Thank you. It's really funny to see that we have related stories. I'm from Tanzania. I speak Swahili. Wherever I express myself, I feel comfortable. I'm really convinced that I can express myself to anyone. And I'm trying to remember when I was starting to learn English in Swahili, I mean in, in the school, 
I was nine by that time. And as you know, we started with the greeting. So that was good morning, good afternoon. So then I came back to home and I was like, good morning. <laughs> and it was just the, it was night. I, I didn't care, is it morning, is it afternoon? As long as I know how to say good morning, for me it was fine. <laughs> but now I'm glad that at least I can just say it in a correct way. Thank you. Mm, thank you. Hi, I was thinking about spoken language and about how our accents um, often say whether we're in the in-group or the out-group um, or our social status. In the U.S., it tells you the geographic region. So, you know, somebody can hear me open my mouth and they say, I can tell you're not from these parts. Um, uh, but I did my junior year in London and I, there I was struck by how much it told you about social status and political views. So that you opened your mouth and all of a, all, already somebody knew, you know, where you were in the social, in the economic hierarchy. Um, so, so, so much is revealed by the accent. Yeah, no, that's very true, yeah. <coughs> oh, sorry. Uh, I even feel bad now. Uh, my story is, uh, I was in standard, uh, standard five. I'm talking standards, not grade, okay? Uh, it was still Africans at school that those days, and I think it was my, my third year to do Africans. I was not good in Africans, and I was selected to stand up for the class because we had people were coming from, from government to come see how we're doing. And then, so, even the... the the Africans teacher was uh, a black guy, which is, was uh, unfamiliar. But he was very good with these Africans. And then, yeah, I, I was crying. I didn't really want because I, I was shy. I'm not a shy person, but I was very shy to stand up in front of everyone and do that. Uh, I just, I still remember that recitation I had to do. It was May Opa. May Opa as Alpa out. Seker hundred Very good. Anybody else who'd like to share a little something that they thought about or reflected on or learned about themselves they hadn't known? Is that it? Well, I think that's, that's the end of it. So, if anyone wants to connect with us, those are details. So, um, yeah, take a picture or ask me for a card. But it was very lovely being here and spending the day with you and sharing with you. So, thank you very much.